0: Off we go, December 19th, uh, 2011, lecture discussion number 50 on the Book of Romans, and just a quick interruption to let Benjamin from Chicago know that I read his kind letter to the class just now during the announcement portion of our service, and uh, everyone cheered and Lori cried, and also to tell Jennifer from Arizona that we are now passing around her picture card. Uh, amongst the group, and some have briefly felt remorse for booing you, Jennifer, a few weeks back, and especially in light of your beautiful, sweet, innocent-looking family. Uh, but they're already over it. And such is their suspicious nature. I just wanted to let you know. Now the truce has concluded, and hostilities are resuming. So be forewarned. Anyway. Just seriously, as you know, as I just read all of Benjamin's and and passed out Jennifer, it's very encouraging for us to receive mail and pictures from you folks who listen via the Internet. This is for you now to listen to me, not for the class here. But for you guys who are listening to us uh, via Internet and such, it makes all of us feel heartened to know you're out there. Uh, Pictures are especially welcome. Uh, eventually Ben and I were talking earlier we will have the cliffside website up and operating and operational we're still a ways away and we're going to put pictures of all of us on there that'll be a very a very small page and we'll and we'll tiny pictures that are out of focus so uh the, we don't want to frighten the small children or stampede the cattle or the horses and uh, so Okay, that's, uh, that is really cool, though, and all the rest of you who are calling and sending us cards and letters and stuff, uh, it's astonishing and amazing to us, and um, we are so grateful. Okay, towards the end of Romans, lecture number 49, uh, last week, right? We took on two of the five warnings, and I've got to stop right there. You've got to know that there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews, five warnings. Very important. And also that they all connect together and they build on each other, just like it always happens. That's how the Bible works, right? Five warnings the book of Hebrews. And we actually only got into warning number two last week. I thought I'd get to warning number three. I thought I'd get to warning number three this week, but I had 12 pages and I'm still on warning number two. So... The warning number two is the warning against disobedience. Disobedience. Now, this coming uh, next week, right? The thirtieth is our is our uh, yearly event, and we have uh, some people are asking me what time it's going to start. Let me say this really fast because I forgot. It'll start uh, about. Um, I think the tickets say six, o- two, Fridays. two Fridays away. No, not this Friday. It's the 30th of December. Right. No, I don't think I did. OK, rewind, <laughs> see what I did. The 30th of December, and I believe the tickets say what time? Six. Um, I suspect that it'll be a little bit later than that. Uh, so don't worry if, you, if you're if you going to be somewhat late. I expect the mayhem uh, to begin about 7, 7.15 or so. Um, and Misty and I have lots of practicing to do to get all of these things all organized and up and operating so that we can win everything. And just so you know, John is putting together the unicycles. Uh, so there will be unicycle racing Um we promise that we'll buy helmets. They won't fit. There will be special there'll be special court questions just for you, Teresa. You don't have to worry about you. Look look, look, I am undefeated in tricycle racing. I have never been beaten in all these years. John's the only one that rolled a tricycle at about thirty miles an hour. I remember that. So, no, us old people, we want to get in there and slug it out, and, and it's okay. But uh, know that uh, that's how it's probably going to go. Anyway, where was I? Warning number two, the warning against disobedience. The reason I brought that up is as I'm writing disobedience, actually spelled it, I hope, uh, correct. Um, it's a very strong possibility that you'll have to spell it backwards, under pressure, so be, be prepared for that kind of stuff. But when you see disobedience, the danger of disobedience, that immediately raises the obvious question. I'm kind of going to rehash some of this from last week so that we get the firm foundation so that I can get you through the last part of Romans uh, 3 and 4 and the warning number 2. But you immediately should ask, uh, what disobedience? Disobedience to what? Is it to a specific instruction or command if it 's a specific instruction or command, what specific instruction or command or do we have to be worried about it? if there's a warning against disobedience shouldn 't we all know which one it is that would make sense? I would want to know, or is it a general warning? See that ultimately becomes the the uh, the discussion, is this a warning against all disobedience? So, uh, and that's the crux of the matter, the substance. So to rephrase the debate, is the second warning, the second admonition of the five warnings or the five dangers or the five admonitions of the book of Hebrews, is it to be applied, the second one, to one specific issue or is it a universal warning for all commandments? Is it a comprehensive alert to the danger of disobedience to all of God's commandments? Now, if you make a mistake here, disobedience, one thing to worry about, one commandment or all. If you make a mistake, if I asked you to vote right now, which I would never do, never, but you would see that uh, uh, especially on the internet, if I asked the internet folks it'd probably come out about seventy thirty that it's all i i'd get I'd gather that it would be probably ninety ten that the disobedience warning is for a general comprehensive uh, alert to the danger of all of God's commandments disobeying all of them. If you make a mistake here in the book of Hebrews with regard to is it specific or is it general, a mistake here causes a cascade of mistakes. And now you're in mistake city. You are the mayor and the assembly of mistake city. You're running the sewage system. You're, you are all mistake city. You're the parking authority of mistake city. As you can sur- surmise, the second warning of the book of Hebrews, as Bill mentioned in his elder message, the second warning of the book of Hebrews is championed by those who desperately want it to be evidence of conditional salvation. They really want it to be that. Let me put that on the board, for you. just so you can look at the term. Conditional salvation. Immediately, boy, your alarm bell should be going off. So far I haven't had a pen yet that works, have I? This one. Your alarm bell should be going off. Conditional salvation. Immediately you should ask, is, is there even such a thing? Why would anybody want it to be the case? But in the second warning of the book of Hebrews... Is certainly lifted up to be evidence of it. Now, conditional salvation. Let me define it again. I defined it last week. Um, it is a being a being defined as that salvation which is taken taken back or rescinded by God. That salvation that is revoked or voided by God on the basis that the one who was given the salvation was unable to maintain possession of it. Yes, let me repeat that. Conditional salvation is defined as that which is rescinded by God, voided by God, revoked, taken back. God takes back his salvation, they will say, because of the person who had the salvation's inability to maintain possession. They lost it. Or it is revoked and taken back because the person who had it was unwilling to. To maintain possession. Do you understand that? That makes sense? Unable to keep it or unwilling to keep it. Now, they will say to you that unable is the same as unwilling. I make a distinction. They will not. Now, let me rephrase what I just said again. whole lot of rephrasing going around here. Um, there are those who insist that salvation is dependent ultimately on the human, on the human individual's capability to hold fast to the salvation. So in other words, your salvation, my salvation, everyone's salvation, given by God, but we have the responsibility to hold on to it. And if we are unable to hold on to it, then it is lost. And Kathy uh, we got in a discussion prior to the service here on reblood, okay? Because you were saved by the covering of the blood of Christ. That's your garment. If the blood is somehow removed, then you'd have to be reblooded. You got to go to the reblood washed place, right? Does that that make sense to you? That's ultimately what it is. Then you're into this discussion: How did the blood come off? How did you get the blood off? Do you get more blood? Where do you get the new blood? What's the difference? How many blood coverings does it take before you finally can't get the blood off? Or can you always get the blood off? And they will say to you that this is this is the the way this is ends up being finished if it, it's natural end, I guess. They will say to you that if you have your salvation and you lose your salvation either because you are unable to keep it or you are unwilling to keep it then you cannot be re-saved. What is the problem there? That That is where ultimately this gets. So those who insist that salvation is dependent on, uh, in other words, it's is conditional, the, ultimately it's conditional on the human individual's uh, capability to hold on to their salvation, or the human individual's continued decision to Remain safe. That would be the definition or the issues of conditional salvation. Now I'm hoping you were attentive to that last part because I tried to emphasize the word human because that becomes key. Is God's salvation so designed, so designed, sorry, that continued human effort is required? Is it so designed that continued human choosing is likewise necessary? In other words, is God's plan of salvation such that you have to hold it yourself and you have to decide to keep it at all times? Is that how he designed it? Because so, the emphasis is no longer on him. Is that true? It ultimately becomes the human effort and the human choosing. So it is the human effort and the human will that becomes important. And in the event that the frail or becomes um, um, superseding, if you will, and in the event of frail human in weakness, how many of you are frail humans? Okay, raise your hand. Yeah, Good. If you think you are not a frail human, then you are, what's the word I want? Something soft so I don't offend people. You are an idiot. <laughs> okay? Sorry. <laughs> you know that I am not sorry, don't you? In the event the frail human in weakness stumbles and falls and is unable to continue the race. You know, races are won for ribbons or what we would call rewards, right? That's what we do. We get a reward for continuing the race. So you have to define what the race is. Paul was never worried about keeping his salvation. What was he worried about? Finishing the race. What's the difference between the race and the salvation? If you think the race is the salvation, then welcome to the, you're now up to senator of Mistake City. Okay? Pretty soon you become president of the country of or the nation of Mistake. You keep doing this. Again. In the event the frail human in weakness stumbles and falls, is unable to continue the race, is beset with anger, frustration, torment, confusion, becomes discouraged, demoralized, then his her salvation is at risk. Is that the plan? That's why I've said in the past that if, if that is the truth, then none are saved. And God has designed a system that none can be saved in. You have eliminated salvation for everybody. Or if the puny, fragile human succumbs to temptation or addiction or selfishness, iniquity, evil, then also his or her salvation is withdrawn, taken away by God. And, of course, now we're into this which sin. All sins are excused, by the way, on both sides. The Calvinists excuse sins and the Armenians excuse sins. What becomes important is, is where's the line of the unexcusable? Which sin is unexcusable, inexcusable, that causes the rev- rovo- re- <laughs> revocation of your salvation by God? God is in the uh, repo business. That's what you got? That's your view? Okay, let's see. Chronister is, oh, look at him. We gotta, we gotta pull his salvation today. Let's go and get it at midnight when he's not looking. Drive it away. It, it, I, I hate to make fun of it. That's not true, is it? I, I, don't, I, I don't hate to make fun of it. But is that how this works? God's a repossessing salvation? Does the aforementioned accurately describe what the scriptures say is the salvation process? Is this God's plan of salvation? Put it this way. I have a chain, don't I? And I know I'm repeating this. Okay, here's my chain of salvation. And right here, I have the human being in the link. There he is. And then I'm back to God's chain, right? That link right there is wet tissue paper. It can be broken by a very small thing. It, 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 do, you, do you really believe, the people who have this view, that the, the chain of salvation has a link that is human in it? That could be broken so simply. Requires very little strength. I have a human who's feeble. He's a tiny speck. He's wet tissue paper. How good a chain you got? What does the Scripture say? That's so important in Romans. Additionally, the second warning of the book of Hebrews requires the student to reason through the context of Hebrews. Is the judgment there in the second warning... Is the judgment that comes upon those in that warning physical death or spiritual death? We discussed this last week, and that leads to more questions. If the judgment is physical death for the disobedience of that one command, if that's your view, you have one command, disobedience to that one command results in physical death, why is physical death the consequence of disobeying the second warning. Why isn't it a beating? Why isn't it stand in the corner? Why isn't it excommunication from the body? Why isn't it, uh, pick whatever you want, it isn't, if you disobey the second warning If you have this view, that the disobedience is to a specific order, a specific command. By the way, how many of us are keeping all of God's commandments? Thank you for not raising your hands. So if disobedience is general, you have to reconcile that with the the impending or imminent physical death that came because of the disobedience to the second warning. If it is one specific thing that God commanded, one order, and they disobeyed it, and the result was specific, was the physical death, why? Why is physical death the consequence of disobeying the second warning? Or if you adhere to the other position, that it is spiritual death, if you disobey all, or you disobey one, whichever view you have, that the, that the, that the consequence is everlasting death. Why is it everlasting death? Which is the second death, Revelation 2014. Why is spiritual death the aftermath of disobeying the second warning of the book of Hebrews? That's where you end up. Again, isn't it obvious that the full understanding of the meaning of the second warning will also make it obvious as well as to the interpretation that is correct? If you know what the second warning is about, You should be able to figure out what it all means, how it all fits. Is it specific, again, or is it general? Who is being warned? Exactly. Exactly who is being warned. I want to know their names. How does the warning apply to us today? Because all scripture is applicable. But how does it apply to us And that pretty much wraps up last week, all the issues from last Sunday. I repeated them again because this is a tough sledding hill. And I want to make sure you get to the bottom and you get all the way back up the top. And then so I I know that it's a struggle. Listen, I do. I have to deal with it a lot. I almost deal with this particular issue every single day. I have to think if I've done it today. Yes, I've done it today, and I did it yesterday, and I pretty much every single day somebody asks me about this issue. Uh, It's rare that it doesn't. Okay? So hopefully you remember all of that from last Sunday. If you don't, I hope it makes more sense to you. But uh, remember this as well. Have no position that is in conflict with Romans 4. That's how we got here, right? Romans 4 is where we are, where Paul starts out pounding away at salvation by works. And that is in quotation because there is no such thing as salvation by works, but people believe that there is. And so he starts to tear it apart. And he tears it apart by bringing Abraham. He's talking to Jews, the Roman Jews, if you will. He brings Abraham, David, and circumcision. That's his battle. And uh, last week I, I went through that as best I could. We don't have time to do it again. And hopefully you remember the conclusion to all of this that I did last week. Ro- or Hebrews 3 is under the umbrella, it is in the context, if you will, of um, Numbers 13 and 14, which is what? You remember from last week. Numbers 13 and 14, what is it? It is the refusal of Israel to enter into the promised land slash rest slash Jerusalem. Israel refused to go. What is that? As disobedience to what? A direct order. Think military. I had a military young man today come by and see me. Hi, uh, Drew. And I told him. God will give you a direct order. What is the direct order he gives you? By the way, he gives it to all of us. Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. Believe. That's a direct order. You can disobey that order. Most do. But in this case, Numbers 13 and 14 God commands them to enter. He commands the nation of Israel to enter into the promised land rest, the promised rest. Enter into Jerusalem. God commands them. And Israel does what? Disobeys that direct order. Why'd they do it? Yeah, that they sent in. Twelve spies, right? Ten spies came back and said, no, we can't do it. Got a problem. What's the problem? Got big giants in there. Can't take them. Those guys are big. We're not going. And it always astonishes me. What's overhead of these folks? I got the starship enterprise, baby. You know, I mean, I got that pillar of cloud. That I I have weaponry that no one can even imagine. And I'm worried about what? A giant. I mean, come on. It always amazed me. What kind of human being would think that God will not prevail? Oh, I know. All human beings. Anyway, they got a direct order to to attack, and they did not. And think again, military. They disobeyed a direct order, and and the consequences of that disobedience to that direct order resulted in physical death in the wilderness. And notice what I just told you. It was one thing in Romans 14. I'm sorry, in Numbers 14. One thing Resulted in physical death. It wasn't a general disobedience to every commandment of God. It was one. And that, by the way, is the umbrella under which, uh, 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 the second warning, Hebrews 3, is, uh, is in. So, also note, as I said, they were not, the, the punishment for disobedience was not something. What was what would have been the logical punishment? It was physical death was the punishment. What is that? That's physical death. Is that good or bad? Who care could trap you here? If you disobey a direct order, I will shoot you. Is that bad? No, that's good. How do I know it's good? Because who gave the order? God, who decided the punishment? God, and God is always good. If you ever have a position that God is not always good, you are in Mistake City again, working your way up to world leader of Mistake City. You'll be in charge of Mistake World. So so it is good that they died in the wilderness If you think it was bad, you're in conflict with the first position, the first rule. God is always good. Why is it good? That would be your most appropriate question. Why is it that he let them die physical death in the wilderness instead of doing what? What did they want to do? They weren't going to take on the giants, can't beat the giants. Giants are going to win, never mind We have God right overhead. God can't beat the giants either. We're not going in. We're disobeying a direct order. What's the consequences? What did they think would happen? They thought it through. Come on, you think it through. We're not going into the promised rest. We're not going into Jerusalem. We're not going into the promised land. Where are we going to go? Back to where? Egypt that God did not return them to Egypt. Did you ever want to know why he wouldn't let them go back to Egypt? Instead, he let them die in the wilderness. It is better, it is good to die in the wilderness. It is bad to go back to Egypt. That's how it works. They did not return to Egypt. There's tremendous typology there. Did they want to go back? I'd say 99%. I you got Caleb and Joshua, Moses and Aaron and maybe Miriam, I'm not sure about Miriam. The rest of them clamored to go back to Egypt, but God would not let them, nor would he let Lot's wife return to Sodom. You'll see the same dynamic there. Hebrews 3 is therefore Jewish Christians who are contemplating disobeying a direct order because it's the same as Numbers 14. That's what it tells you when you look at the references. Hebrews 3, under the umbrella, it's the same as, if you will, a similar to. So therefore, Hebrews 3 has Jewish Christians who are contemplating disobeying a direct order from God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, gave them a direct order, again, with respect to entering Jerusalem. I have the same thing. In the first, in Numbers 14, he told them to enter Jerusalem and take the land, go into the promised rest. Okay? In Hebrews 3, he tells them, don't go into Jerusalem. That is not a coincidence. Let's add that piece where he tells him, don't go. It's Luke 20. Read that into the record. This is very complicated, too, and I've gone over it hundreds of times. Always confuses folks. Luke 21, sorry, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem, this is the order Jesus Christ gave that ultimately is is confronting these Christian Jews in Hebrews chapter 3, the danger of the second warning. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart and let not those who are in the country enter her. He gave them a direct order. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded, who's going to surround Jerusalem, by the way? The Roman army, led by Titus. They're coming to collect something. What? The taxes. The Jews weren't going to pay the taxes. What did the Romans do? Wipe them out. The Lord God Almighty says, flee from Jerusalem, the commander of the army of the Lord, Joshua 5.14. He calls himself the commander of the army of the Lord. What are we? We're soldiers. How many of us are officers? Probably none of us. Which means what are we doing? That's right. sheetrock rock. Painting. That's what it works. If it, does, if it doesn't move, paint it, right? I'm highly equipped to be the guy that paints stuff that doesn't move. Lots of practice. The Lord God Almighty says, Flee from Jerusalem. The Lord God Almighty, the commander of our army, says, With respect to the first of the three questions of Matthew 24 3. Remember the three questions. The disciples, they ask him three questions. Matthew 24 3. When will these things be? That's question one, what will be the sign of your coming, question two, and then essentially, what will be the sign of the end of the Gentile age? There's three questions, they wanted to know those three signs, and question number one, when will these things be, refers to the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. And that occurred in 70 AD, the Roman army came and stripped the temple, tore it down block by block, stone by stone, why? Because it was built with gold in between all those stones and they wanted the gold and they took it all down and they slaughtered the inhabitants. They wanted to glean the gold out and they slaughtered the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they pretty well just, if you want to think of it this way, they bulldozed the whole place. They tore down the the hill, of Golgotha, the place where... Uh, uh, Goliath's skull was buried where Christ chose to crucify, be crucified, and to give up his life. They tore that down. They eradicated it. They removed any trace of the Jews. That was their goal, and they did so. They were very efficient. The Roman army. They just tore it down completely, as much as they could. Kill everybody there. That is the warning. Don't go into Jerusalem because the Roman army is coming. And don't go in there. Flee instead. To flee it. Get in the mountains. Don't re-enter it. What were the Jews of Romans 3 thinking? I'm sorry, the Jews of Hebrews 3 thinking. Man, we need to go back to Jerusalem. They had a direct order to not do it. What were they going to do? Disobey it. What's the obvious question? Why? Why would they do that? Anyway, the Romans tore it all down, killed everybody. Everybody that was there, they put it under siege. They wiped them out. And, and they renamed the remains something. What did they rename the remains? They renamed it Philistine. What do we call that today? Palestine, that's right. That's what they did. And that was their way of accomplishing the uh, removal or the eradication of any trace of the Jews. Anyway, question number one was asked, answered second by Christ. He answered the third question first and the second question third. And you all know that. And knowing that helps you get through Matthew 24, verse 3, and that which follows. For the purpose today... For our purposes today, the Christian Jews were directly told to recognize the impending destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans and flee and leave Jerusalem behind. So the first group was told to go into Jerusalem, and the second group was told to not go into Jerusalem. And the same thing would be accomplished in both. Both would get rest. Now, how does that work? Get to that in a minute. But I want you to notice the comparison contrast to Numbers 13. The Jews there were told, directly told, to leave Egypt and enter Jerusalem. Here in Romans, I'm sorry, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, we find Jewish Christians in a similar danger. For the Exodus generation to disobey the direct order from God, that result would be physical death. And by the way, it took 40 years. I have this 40 year issue coming back. For the Christian Hebrews, who are now the uh, uh, the um, the receivers of the book of Hebrews, for those people, they have already left Jerusalem. And what's happening to them now? Why did they leave Jerusalem? They left Jerusalem because they're what? Christians. How's that working out for them? Really bad. Ask a Jew today that's a Messianic Christian Jew. Ask how it's going. Who talks to them? Their family talked to them? No. It's not a good thing. They left Jerusalem. They're Christian Jews. And they're persecuted and isolated. And they want to go back to Judaism. What is Judaism? Yeah. Phariseeism. The law. Works-based. Human-based Salvation system. Again, there's no such thing as a works-based, human-based salvation. There's only a God-given salvation. But anyway, we'll exceed the, the terminology just for the sake of discussion. But those Jews would give up their isolation and go back into Jerusalem and, and in an act of disobedience. And by the way, it's been 40 years since Christ ascended. Or the crucifixion, whichever way you wish to measure. So, 40 years, they will now disobey his direct order, and they will go back to Jerusalem, and what will be the result? They'll be killed by the Romans. What is that? Physical death. Remember, the Exodus generation constantly referred to the oppressive slavery of Egypt as something, what? How did they refer to it? They constantly did it. They said what? If only we could do what? Go back and live in Egypt. Where it was what? Wonderful. We had cable TV, indoor toilets, you know, food delivered every day. They really did. I mean, I'm being a little bit sarcastic. How stunning is that? But they really did refer to Egypt as something they longed to return to. And that's what their plan was. We're not going to enter the promised land. We're not going to take the rest. We're going to go back to Egypt. They called Egypt, which was profoundly evil and oppressive and destructive, they called it good. It's someplace good to go. That would be our equivalent of uh wanting to move to, say, oh, I could get in trouble, huh? You know, a bunch of things came to mind right off the bat. M- Muldoon came to mind. Yeah. Eagle River came Got to be careful. I got to be careful. <laughs> anyway. <coughs> they... They saw Egypt as something good, and they're calling it something that is evil good. And the Hebrew Christians that uh, Paul was writing to, and again, I'm positive Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I know that people think I'm nuts for saying that, but... I just see its relationship to Romans and I can't come to any other conclusion. But the Hebrew Christians uh, that Paul wrote to in the book of Hebrews, they were lamenting the pharisaical society. They wanted to go back to that of Jerusalem. They wanted to go back to something that they thought that was more desirable than their current status and condition. They wanted to go back to Phariseeism versus what they had. They were beginning to return to Phariseeism. And the Apostle Paul forcefully warns them, as forcefully as he can, of the impending danger. He tells them it's the same as Numbers 14. Those people disobeyed a direct order to go into Jerusalem and they had physical death. If you, uh, in the wilderness, if you go back to Jerusalem, you will have physical death. He let them know it was the same danger. Now, let's read the conclusion of Hebrews chapter 4 so I can get it seared into you. And by the way, for those of you who listen on the Internet, there will be no lecture uh, in the next two weeks. I will be uh, wrapping up other issues. And so we're going going to hide for a couple of weeks. I would call it a vacation, but it is anything but. So let's look at this conclusion in in uh, Hebrews three and four, uh, and so you see the context firmly in place. Start at verse eighteen, three eighteen. Uh, uh, 17. Let's try 317. Now, with whom was he angry? Again, is God's anger uh, capricious and arbitrary and uh, humanistic? No. There's a difference between our sinful anger and his anger. Now, his anger is what? It's good. There's a purpose for it. Is it for his sake? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? In other words, the ones that didn't get to go back to Egypt. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Ooh, there's that word, rest. They would not go to his rest. But to those who did not obey. So we, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Now, here's... Number four, four, one, and wow, this is the big deal. starts out with therefore. You've got to find the therefores and the ands and the buts and all of that stuff that's powerful. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. Rest. Promise remains for entering his Rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In other words, don't do what they did in Numbers 14. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Who's the them in that question? Numbers 14, right? But the word which they heard did not profit them. Who's he talking about? Who's the them? Numbers 14. I hear this all the time and they think the them is some other church across the street. I'm serious. They do. The them is them. We're the us. We're the saved ones. Those are the unsaved. There is no shortage of people who want to be arbiters of who is saved and who is not. There's billions of them. You can't stop them. They all come to church. They all become pastors. That's that's a joke, but it's not at the same time. It's a sad state of affairs. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them. They died in the wilderness, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. But we who have believed do enter that rest. That's what I'm doing. Writing down rest as he said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. How many rests have you got so far? Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested. Rested. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works, and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, what do you think that word is? When I say, for if Joshua, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. That is the Greek word, Jesus. Yeshua. Same word. What's it mean? Salvation. For if Jesus had given them rest, then he would not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest. That lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts intense and intents and intents of the heart. That is, by the way, is an incredible substance dualism verse. But I want you to just... You notice the repeating phrase, "Entering his rest, enter that rest, enter my rest, some must enter it, give them, giving them rest, His rest, God rested, the Holy Spirit, through the apostle Paul, is beating you with that word: "Rest, rest, 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 rest." Why? I hope you can feel Paul's concern, his worry. Because Paul had a pretty cool deal, didn't he? What was his deal? Paul got to see stuff. Paul got to know stuff. And by the way, this is the season of stuff, isn't it? You go out and you buy stuff. And then you go home and you wrap the stuff. And then you give the stuff to people who give you back stuff. And then you take the stuff... Back to the place that sells the stuff and you exchange it for other stuff. Well, that's right. You have to have a receipt for the stuff in order to get the stuff that you really want to put with what? The other stuff that you have so that you can do what with it? Yeah. Yeah, that's my favorite. That's my favorite saying of all time. He who dies with the most stuff is dead. That's what I like that. Okay. I love that. Okay. I hope you can see that Paul knows what lies ahead because he had the ability to be he was he had Christ face to face uh, he had knowledge given to him that we can't even imagine. And he knows well, if these Hebrew Christians go back to Jerusalem in order to reenter their society, in order to go back to their homes and their friends, um, he knows what's going to happen. He knows that they will be killed there. And Paul is struggling to keep them alive. Why? Ask why. What is it that Paul's hoping for? Let me just ask you this. How did these folks become Christians? They're Jews. Who do you suppose reasoned with them and talked to them and got them saved? I know that's a Holy Spirit, but who's the agent that the Holy Spirit used? I believe that these are, just as the rest of the letters, these are people, these are Hebrews that Paul had a direct impact that became Christians through his ministry that the Holy Spirit gave him. And I submit that the preeminent doctrinal scholar that is Paul, that is the Apostle Paul, is the one that was used to by the Holy Spirit to reach these Jewish believers who are now about to go back and be killed. And Paul fears that they're going to walk right in there and they're all going to die. He knows it. He knows that whoever goes back to that city will die in it. And every believer is precious to Paul because he sees them as what? He sees them as soldiers. That's how he does it. He wants them to what? He wants them to fight. He wants them to do as much damage as they can. It's a war. He knows it's a war. He got to see it. We see the physical. He got to see the principalities. He got to see the unseen. He knows it's a war. And these are his soldiers. And he wants them to fight. And this is his platoon, if you will. And they're going to do what? I used—I saw a movie many years ago. Christopher got me interested in some of it. But it was Larry McMurtry, and it was Dead Man's Walk. And you've heard me refer to it before. They walk across the desert to be executed. And I've often wondered if that wasn't our building program. And it turned out it was. They, they were killed by Apaches, and they died in the heat, and they got all the way to their goal, and they were shot what a wonderful movie i watched it for about 6 hours but it fascinated me dead man's walk and that's what this is this, these jews jewish christians are there, they're going to give themselves up they're going to become they're going to march into a pow camp only to be executed and paul is crying for them and so how does Paul define enter the rest in the scripture passage that, uh, that it just pounded with it? What does the scripture say that definition is? Again, we started out with therefore. Let me repeat that. Therefore. Therefore what? What causes the therefore? Numbers 13 and Numbers 14 causes the the Therefore. The Exodus generation, forgiven, that's Numbers 14.20, pardoned, nonetheless, suffers physical death in the wilderness. You heard me say last week, eventually you get to a place where your repentance does not eliminate the consequences. The Exodus generation did not enter that rest. They did not enter it. So we have our first piece of evidence as to the correct definition of enter that rest. We know that the first generation did not get there. Now we notice that Joshua has his own rest. And that's verse 8. Again, Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua, salvation, the name of God, the Son, and the flesh. That, by the way, that rest word is unique in the New Testament. It is only used in this place. So it is different, distinct from the other rests in the passage. A distinction of great importance, great significance. Certainly important to correctly interpret, rightly dividing the truth of Hebrews 4 and the definition of interrest. rest. Now, the therefore of Hebrews 3, the second warning. The danger of disobeying the direct order to stay away from Jerusalem is all involved in the discussion or all involved in the definition of the word rest. Let me reread this last word or last sentence here uh, that I think solves it for you. Verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example. What same example is he talking about? The Numbers fourteen example Don't do what they did. They didn't enter the rest. If you do what they do did, if you go back to Jerusalem, you will not enter the rest. What is the rest? What does the rest mean? What did, what is it that the people in Numbers 14 didn't do? They didn't ultimately choose to what? Fight. They believed that they would be beaten. They wouldn't go. They wouldn't charge. He had an army poised to charge and they refused to charge. What did they want to do instead? They wanted to retreat blew the horn, said go, and they stood still, wouldn't move. They did not charge. That same example. So I have the same example here. I have a, a, a group of people who will not fight. They're going to retreat one wanted to retreat to Israel i'm sorry to egypt the other was going to retreat to jerusalem they're not going to charge they didn't act upon their faith there was no boldness instead there was weakness there was no understanding there was no peace there's no confidence hebrews 4:16 <sighs> let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need think of it in time of fight the Exodus generation froze. They panicked. They wouldn't charge. They actually retreated. They turned and ran. They had no maturity. They had no assuredness. They wouldn't go. And it is not coincidental, by the way, that Hebrews 5, which it contains the next warning, the third warning, 5.11 through 6.20, warning number three, the danger of remaining immature, the danger of not progressing, the danger of staying as a child, the danger of having no wisdom. That comes next. So I have frozen people in both cases. Numbers 14, Hebrews 3. Unable to move. Unable to act. They do not obey a direct order. They do, they, they disobey it. And he's saying, don't disobey a direct order. Don't remain a baby. The two warnings relate. They connect. If you have no maturity, you will disobey a direct order. You won't fight. Your life, by the way, will be what? A mess. And what's going to happen to you? You think you're going to do something great, don't you? You're going to retreat to what? To fight another day? No, instead, what will happen? Body bag. The opposite of what will happen will happen. What's that? No. You're disobeying a direct order, it has no effect on your salvation. But what does it have an effect on? You can't fight. You're absolutely frozen. You have all the weapons in the world. You can't move. You won't move. Why won't you move? Because you have no rest. You won't have rest. What's rest mean? If you don't have maturity, if you don't have peace, if you don't have the ability to fight, You will disobey a direct order. Your life will be ruined. Is that a word? Rent. You will fall not from salvation, but you will fall from what? Usefulness. What do you become? Here you are as a soldier. Think, soldier. Charge. You go. And you stand there. What are you? You're a bullet stopper. That's what you become. You can't fight. You won't shoot. You'll be shot. You won't lose your salvation, but you're useless and you'll have to be carried by those who will fight. Those who can fight. What makes them somebody that can fight? They have entered the rest. They have rest. What is that? That is peace. That is strength. That is understanding. Those who have not rest will be blown about. They'll be unstable. They will just be shot cold, picked up, carried off. And that, by the way, is what is normal for what passes for the church today. That's why I read you Benjamin. What did Benjamin say? I'm fighting. I'm not intimidated. I'm going to go fight. Every time I can, I'm shooting something. Not standing still, he's not frozen. He can fight. That's where I want you to be. Don't want you to retreat. Don't want you to panic. Don't want you to be scared. Get out there and shoot somebody. Not literally, figuratively. Let's stand and be dismissed.